Uh, tonight we're going to be in Luke chapter 10. And uh, if you've got a copy of the scriptures, I'd just encourage you to go ahead and just uh, find your way there and just kind of hold your place. And we're going we're gonna to get to that in just a moment. But this last week's been pretty amazing for me. Uh, I got to go back home to Kentucky, uh, where I'm from, to Louisville. Uh, I got to see my parents. My parents uh, still live in the same house that I grew up in. They've lived there nearly 30 years. Uh, the house actually sits just about 500 feet from my dad's family farm that he grew up on. So that's his home and got to be back there. Went there uh, Thursday night because uh, my team, the University of Louisville, uh, had a little football game on Thursday night. We played uh, Florida State uh, and that went really great for a half. <laughs> and, and then it got really bad really fast. And, uh, but it was great to be back there. But I was reminded that it really doesn't matter how the football game went on Thursday night, because in Kentucky, we use football to get in shape for basketball season. <laughs> football just kind of takes up space between August and like November. Uh, and really right about now, we start to lose interest uh, in football because basketball season is cranking up. And the Wildcats are ranked number one, and the Cards are ranked number eight. And uh, so we're pretty optimistic about what's going to happen this year in the Bluegrass State. And so I was just reminded that that's, that's kind of where I'm from, and that's what it's all about. And in Kentucky, uh, when you're a, a young boy uh, and you're, you're born in Kentucky, um, they do a couple things. They put a basketball in your hand and a bottle in your hand. And one of those things is optional. And it's not the basketball. The basketball is, is not optional. So from the time you're a little boy, you, you, if you're able, you play basketball. That is like every dad's dream in the state of Kentucky is that their son's going to play basketball. And so I played basketball all throughout grade school and, and, uh, and uh, high school. And even my first year of college, I got to play some basketball. And so now that I have kids, I'm starting to coach my kids' basketball teams. And so my oldest son is eight. So I've been coaching his team for three years. Uh, my youngest son is five. And so I have decided to not coach my oldest son's team this year. I'm going to coach the the five-year-old team this year, which is going to be absolutely helter-skelter, I'm sure of it. Uh, and, and it's amazing to watch kids play basketball. And one of the things you want to do when you teach kids basketball is you want to start with the fundamentals. And the most basic fundamental to basketball is dribbling. You want to teach the kids how to dribble. And, but have you ever watched a five-year-old dribble a basketball? I mean, what do they do? Man, they're just putting their head down and they are all over the place. I mean, they're banging into each other. They're running out of bounds. They're tripping over each other. It's absolutely crazy. And so one of the things you want to do as a five-year-old basketball coach is you want to teach the kids to get their head up. You want to teach them to get their head up because their head's down and they're there ineffective if their head is down. So you want to teach them to get their head up. So typically you run a little drill with, with five-year-olds or six-year-olds where you line them all up in a line and you get them to go down the baseline dribbling the basketball. And when they get to the half court line, uh, you, get, you get them to keep their head up and the coach is usually holding up his fingers, like one finger or two fingers or three fingers. And as the kids go by, they call out the number and that forces them to keep their head up. And so when I played basketball all throughout high school and, and, and into my first year of college, uh, the fundamentals were with me. I had learned the fundamentals at a very young age. But when I was in high school, uh, our basketball team was not very good. Uh, we actually won six games my sophomore year. 
Uh, and then my uh, junior year, we won eight games. And so we were, we were bad, uh, actually really, really bad. But my senior year, we got a new coach and things turned around pretty quickly. And so we had a really good season. We went to the regional tournament for the first time in our school's history, started to get a little notoriety, enough notoriety that I got uh, noticed enough that I got to walk on at a very small school, an NAIA school, Campbellsville College uh, in Kentucky. And I got to walk on and basically ride the bench uh, for the Campbellsville Tigers. It was awesome. And I'll never forget my first pickup game. Uh, We're out there playing and I don't know these guys and I'm nervous. And so I'm just trying to stay with my guy. And so the whole time I'm keeping my head down because I'm just, I'm just looking for my guy. I'm not keeping my head up, just keeping my head down, watching my guy. And so I remember this one particular play, my guy kind of runs under the basket and he's curving out around this way. And so I'm, I'm just trying to follow him. And as he curves out this way, I turn around. And I've still got my head down. And as I turn around, the best player on our team, he was on my squad. He says, Aaron, get your head up. And so the moment I got my head up, I see this very large man flying through the air. His knee was level with my eyes and he dunked on me, like rattled the rim dunked on me. His knee hit me in the nose and bloodied my nose. No, you, you're not empathizing enough there. I, I can't tell you how humiliating it is. Here I am, a freshman. I'm trying to make the team. And I keep my head down and I turn around and this guy dunks on me and bloodies my knows. Why? Because I forgot the fundamentals. The most fundamental thing in basketball is you keep your head up. You, you are aware of your surroundings so that you can move the ball, so that you can move, so that you can keep track of your defensive guy, and so that you don't get dunked on. That's why you keep your head up. Over the last uh, couple of weeks in our house, we've been talking a lot about keeping our eyes up. And we're reminded tonight, even through these stories, that some of you walking through these doors and you've just got some horrific things that you've been walking through and walking with. Some of you are facing insurmountable odds right now. And, and, and the world is coming at you from all angles. And so we've been reminded over these last couple of weeks that we need to keep our eyes up on Jesus. And we were reminded from our pastor that in Second Chronicles, King Jehoshaphat was facing obstacles. They were coming at him from all angles. And when Jehoshaphat was at the end of his rope, when he did not know what else to do, he knew of only one thing that would work, and that was to keep his eyes on God. It says in Second Chronicles 20, it says, for we are powerless against this great horde that is coming against us. We do not know what to do, but our eyes are up and our eyes are on you. Here's what I want you to do tonight. I want you to be a part of the illustration. I like to say, everybody, just take your head and, and look down. Just look straight down. And when you look down, what do you see? You see yourself. What, well, you probably see your feet, your lap. You might see a little bit of the person next to you, but primarily you see yourself. Now, look up. Look at me. What else? What do you see? You see me? You see the stage? What else do you see? You see other people. See, here's the amazing thing tonight. When our eyes are up on Jesus, we gain peripheral vision. 
When our eyes are up, we see everything that is around us. And when our eyes are up on Jesus, we see that the people that are around us are a part of the mission that Jesus has called us to be a part of. So, man, this is why the church is rendered ineffective sometimes is because we keep our head down as a church. The church is keeping its head down and we're worried about our thing, our program, our deal, our life. But when the church gets its head up, guess what it sees? It sees its city. It sees the people around it. It sees everything. So several months ago, we as a church, we said, listen, we want to make sure that our church, the trajectory of our house, is, is that it's focused on this city. And we said, listen, we love Atlanta. We said this church, this house, Passion City Church, loves Atlanta. And so 10 months ago, we started the Winsome series, just encouraging our house to pray for people who need Jesus. And so we, we put the wall out in the oval, the Jesus is life wall. And we ask people to take a light bulb and we ask people to begin praying for people in their lives who need Jesus. And man, praise God today that since we started that series 10 months ago, 500 people have given their life to Jesus. Absolutely amazing. Absolutely amazing. But here's the thing today. We are so grateful for those 500 people. We got to hear five of their stories tonight. We're so grateful for that. But here's the thing. Atlanta is a lost city. As Brad mentioned, I plant churches for a living. I work for an organization that plants nearly 1,000 churches a year all across North America. We've got a guy here in Atlanta that does some research for us. He lives in Midtown. And so I just talked to him this week and I said, hey, tell me a little bit about the situation uh, in Atlanta. In particular, tell me about the inside the perimeter situation. And he says, well, Aaron, you know, when we started our research several, a couple of years ago, we started with the normal, a normal premise that 70 to 80 percent of the inside the perimeter population is lost. He said, but actually, when we did our research, our verifiable research, here's what we found. He said, we found out that 92 percent of people who live inside the perimeter don't go to church. They're unchurched. And he said, what we also found and what we also believe in our anecdotal evidence, meaning what we feel, what we experience, is that the number is somewhere closer to 95% inside the perimeter that are unchurched and, and, and don't go to a church anywhere and presumably don't know Jesus. And so the task is fairly overwhelming here. One major denomination at one point in the 50s, 60s, and 70s, they had nearly 300 churches inside the perimeter. Today it's down to like 37 churches in that particular tribe of churches inside the perimeter. And so Atlanta needs Jesus. And because Atlanta needs Jesus, Atlanta needs Passion City Church. But it needs Passion City Church with its eyes up, looking out, meeting the needs of the people around it. That's what Atlanta needs today. And that's what we're praying for today. My family, we just uh, moved to Atlanta. We've been in the area for four years, but we just moved to Midtown uh, at the beginning of the uh, school year. And we bought a house in Midtown. We're loving it. And I mean, we love everything about Atlanta. Uh, we've just embraced it full on. We lived in New York for nine years. New York is gone. Uh, now we live in Atlanta. And so for better or for worse, we've embraced the sports teams here. So we are Hawks fans, Falcons fans, Braves fans. We're there. Uh, take our kids. We got the t-shirt. We do the whole deal. We live really close uh, to, the, to the High Museum and the Symphony. And so we're there. We love everything that Atlanta has to offer. We live right across the street uh, from Merrimax. And we live right next door to Krispy Kreme. And so it does not get any better than that uh, in Atlanta. 
And so, man, we're just loving Atlanta. My kids, man, they love Atlanta. We were living in, the, in a subdivision up in Alpharetta before we moved down. And last year when they went trick-or-treating, I mean, it took a long time to kind of get around to those houses in Alpharetta. And it took a lot of work. And so the, the other night we went trick-or-treating here. And, man, they hit 10 houses in the time that it took them to hit one up in Alpharetta. And so my kids are loving Atlanta. And they're loving living in the city. But Atlanta needs Jesus. And Atlanta needs us to keep our eyes up and be a church for Atlanta, a church that is embracing the people of Atlanta. So again, 10 months ago, we asked you guys to grab a light bulb and began praying for people in your sphere of influence who needed Jesus, people that are your coworkers or classmates, people that are in your family, people that are your neighbors. And again, praise God, 500 people have already responded to Jesus. But here's what I also know today. I also know that there are thousands of you who took light bulbs and nothing has happened. Nothing has happened. And there's probably one of three stories uh, with your light bulb. For some of you, you took the light bulb and you're still praying fervently. You're still hoping, you're still believing, you're still, you're still praying that your person is going to come to faith in Jesus. And so you're still tracking. For some of you, the light bulb is out of sight, out of mind. You took the light bulb, you had great intentions when you took the light bulb, you stuck it in the cup holder in your car, then you moved it to the glove compartment, and then you took your car to get detailed, and they threw the light bulb away, and so that was kind of the last time you thought of the light bulb. And then there's kind of another crew here tonight, I would imagine, you took the light bulb, you prayed fervently for a couple of months for the person, and all you saw in their lives was maybe them moving further away from Jesus, not closer to him, and you got discouraged And you started to wonder, is it worth it? Should I just give up hope now? Is anything good going to happen? I don't know whether I believe it's possible for this person to come to faith in Jesus. And so for you, you're you're now filled with doubt. And you're wondering if anything great is going to happen and if it's possible for Jesus to save that person. And so tonight what we want to stand on is we want to still believe for the light bulbs. We still want to believe that the same Jesus who began a good work in us will be the same Jesus that's faithful to complete that work. The same Jesus that, they, they, that got you out of your seat and brought you down here to grab that light bulb 10 months ago is the same Jesus that still is watching over the person that you're praying for, is still believing for the person. It's his desire that none would perish, that all would come to faith in Jesus. That's his desire. So he's still believing that. And tonight, we just need our faith lifted a little bit to believe that that same Jesus who said, I'm going to build my church, the gates of hell are not going to prevail against it. We just need our faith lifted a little bit tonight to believe that that same Jesus is in charge tonight. And he wants to do something amazing in you. So have hope tonight. Have hope tonight because Atlanta needs our church. He says in in Matthew 5, 14, it says, you are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. That's what Jesus has called us to. That's why we have the light bulbs is to represent that we are the light of the world. Eugene Peterson in his Bible translation called the message, uh, he says it this way, and I want you to follow along with me and listen to how Eugene talks about Matthew 5, 14. He says, here's another way to put it. He says, you are here to be light bringing out the God colors in the world. God is not a secret to be kept. We're going public with this, as public as a city on a hill. I make you light bearers. You don't think I'm going to put you under a bucket, do you? I'm putting you on a lamp stand. Now that I've put you there on a hilltop, on a a lamp stand, shine. 
Keep open house. Be generous with your lives. By opening up to others, you'll prompt people to open up with God. Let me read that again. Let's believe it tonight. By opening up to others, you'll prompt people to open up with God. This generous Father who is in heaven. And that's what we're believing tonight. We're believing that God has begun a great work and he wants to complete that great work. But I think for many of us tonight, we just need a little bit of encouragement. We just need a little bit of encouragement that God is at work and he has our best intentions in mind and he wants to work in the lives of the people that are all around us. And he wants us to ultimately go the distance with people. He doesn't want us to give up on people. He doesn't want us to stop believing for people. He wants us to go the distance with people. And in Luke chapter 10, we see that Jesus encounters this man. This man is a lawyer. He's not a government lawyer. He is a religious lawyer. He knows the law inside and out. Now, Jesus in Luke chapter 10, he's been out preaching on the countryside. And in Luke chapter 10, where we pick up the story, we see that Jesus has now sent his followers out two by two all across the countryside to to announce the kingdom of heaven, to announce that the kingdom of God is at hand. And as they're out there, by the time we get to verse 25, we see that Jesus has this encounter with this lawyer. And a lot of times what the religious people did, what the religious lawyers, the Pharisees, what they tried to do is they tried to catch Jesus in something that would prove that he is being blasphemous and something that would prove that he is breaking the Jewish law. And so that's what this lawyer, that's what his intent is. He's trying to figure out if Jesus is crossing the line. And so here's what I want to do. I just want to work through the scripture tonight and let the scripture speak to us. So in verse 25 of chapter 10 of Luke, here's what it says. It says, and behold, a lawyer, he stood up to put him to the test, to put Jesus to the test. He was looking to catch him in a contradiction. And here's what he said to Jesus. He said, teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And he said to him, what is written in the law? How do you read it? The lawyer answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind. And you should love your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, you have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. But in verse 29, the lawyer desiring to justify himself said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor. And right then and there, the guy's trying to turn the story on Jesus, and he's looking for Jesus to give him a letter of the law type answer, for Jesus to tightly define who his neighbor is. Because in the Jewish custom, other Jewish people were neighbors with each other. Jews were, were, were neighbors with Jews. They were not neighbors with anyone outside of the faith. And so everyone else were foreigners, but Jews were neighbors with Jews. And so to say anything else would have been very contradictory and would have been unheard of. And so that's where the lawyer is trying to push Jesus. So he's trying to justify himself, trying to push Jesus into saying something and trying to get Jesus to give a narrow answer for who his neighbor is. But then Jesus responded in verse 30. He said, Jesus replied, a man was going down to Jerusalem. So he's starting to tell a story. Going down uh, from Jerusalem to Jericho. This would have been very well known to this lawyer. He would have known this pathway from Jerusalem to Jericho. He would have known that robbers typically hung out there trying to rob the rich people who traveled that very familiar pathway. And so Jesus was using something that this guy understood. And here's what he says. As he traveled this road from Jerusalem to Jericho, he fell among some robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest, 
And the priest was one of the highest ranking Jewish officials. He was the top leader of the Jewish faith. He knew the law inside and out. It says, by chance, a priest uh, was going down that road. And when he saw the man, when he saw him, he passed by to the other side. It says, so likewise, a Levite. Well, the tribe of Levi, the Levites, they were the servants of the temple. They were a little lower ranking than the priest, but still, nonetheless, they knew the law. And it says, so likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, he passed by to the other side. And here's where the story gets very interesting. Verse 33, Jesus says, but a Samaritan. And I want us to stop right there. Now for us, when we read this, that really doesn't strike us as being odd. Uh, and the reason it doesn't strike us to be, as being odd is because we don't necessarily understand the cultural Context. We don't understand the cultural dynamic. But to kind of get the full weight of Scripture sometimes, you need to understand the cultural dynamics that's going on here. And the bottom line is Jews and Samaritans hated each other. It went all the way back to the 400, year, or to 400 years before in the Babylonian captivity. The, Samar- the Samaritans, they intermarried. The Jews remained pure. And from that point forward, they did not like each other. And so they actually loathed each other. They did not get along. So the fact that Jews... Jesus was introducing a Samaritan to the story was going to be unheard of for this Levite, for this man, for this Jewish man, this lawyer. I'm trying to think in, in terms that we might understand today and kind of in serious terms, I was thinking, you know, the, the, the relationship between Israel and Palestine right now, very contentious. We, we understand that those, that is a very contentious relationship. But even more so, I was trying to get real practical because we're in the South tonight. And I was trying to think, you know, what would we understand? And we probably understand that we don't like our rival team. You know, so if we're like a, a Georgia fan, we don't like Tech or whoever else the rival is. And so we have it. There's an there's a, there's a animosity that exists there. And that's the same type of feeling that Jesus is trying to convey here. I was thinking, Pastor, I was thinking about how to put this kind of in Auburn terms. And I was thinking it would kind of be like our pastor who loves Auburn and is with the Auburn team a whole lot. Our pastor who is an Auburn fan. It'd be like our pastor inviting Harvey Updike over for dinner. Now... Harvey Updike, yeah, so it's not going to happen. Harvey Updike is the guy who's an Alabama fan who poisoned the trees at Toomer's Corner. And so he's probably not getting invited to Christmas at any Auburn fan's house anytime soon. And for Jesus, it's a big leap from Harvey Updike to Jesus, but hang with me. But Jesus was throwing this Samaritan into the story to prove a point. He's he's throwing him into the story because the last thing that this Jewish lawyer thought is that a Samaritan would enter a story about God and that the Samaritan could be the hero of the story. That's the last thing that he was thinking because of such animosity there. So Jesus introduced this Samaritan. And then here's what he says about this Samaritan. He says, then as he journeyed, he came to where he was. So this Samaritan journeys along. He comes to where this man who has been beaten, he comes to where he was. He saw him and he had compassion. He went to him. He bound him up, bound his wounds, poured oil on him and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper. 
He said, take care of him and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. And if you have a scripture that you can underline those words right there, underline those words, when I come back, because they're going to be very important here in just a few minutes. He says, I will repay you when I come back. In verse 36, Jesus asked, which of these do you think proved to be the neighbor to this man who fell among the robbers? And and he said, the lawyer said, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. You see, Jesus completely altered this man's paradigm. This man was thinking one thing and then Jesus completely altered his paradigm and he stretched who who he thought his neighbor was. Jesus stretched it beyond what anything that he could ever believe. Not only is your neighbor those people who are like you, the people that are around you, the people that you like to be around, the people that you like to hang around, but no, your neighbor is everybody. Your neighbor is even that Samaritan guy that you cannot stand, but my kingdom, my gospel is big enough to include all of those people and guess what? He's now your neighbor. You know, it's interesting. I shared this in the first two, so I'll share it with you guys. Do you remember this little uh, little nursery rhyme that we shared with kids early in Sunday school? I mean, if you, especially if you're like me and grew up in the Baptist church, you probably did this. Uh, if, I, if I do this, does anybody know what I'm dealing with here? All right, so, so if, you, if, you, if you didn't do this, tonight's your night because we're all going to participate together. This is an all skate. Uh, and so uh, you get to put your hands. So just take your hands like this, put it together. Um, okay, so here, here, here's how it goes. It says, here's the church. Here's the steeple. Open the door and see all the people. You know what's awesome about that? Is that is horrible theology. Absolutely terrible theology because here's what that teaches. It teaches that the church is in here. That the church is inside these four walls. And, and that the church is for people who kind of get along together, who like to hang out together, who like to sing together, do all those kind of things together. And that's kind of what the church is all about. Have you ever wondered why we don't call this building we're gathered in a church building? You never heard anybody refer to it as that? You know why? Because we don't want you to think for one second that the church is in here. Yes, the church gathers here on Sunday. We gather to edify. We gather to encourage. We gather to be lifted up. But guess what? The church is gathered so it can be scattered so that it can be a light to this city and the world everywhere that you go throughout your day. Churches who have bought into this theology and this mindset are churches that are near death today. Because every time your eyes start to go down to yourself, you start to look inward, you've lost your peripheral vision. And you don't see the people around you. And that's not the heartbeat of God. It's not the mission of God. So as I was thinking about this story, the Good Samaritan, there's four words that came to mind. I want to leave you with these four words tonight. There there are four characteristics of this Good Samaritan man, this winsome man that I want us to grab a hold of tonight. And those four words are simply this. The, uh, The winsome Good Samaritan man was a walking man. He was a seeing man. He was a meeting man. And he was a staying man. Let me give you those again and I'll break them down. A winsome man, the the Good Samaritan man, he was a 
walking man. He was a seeing man. He was a meeting man. And he was a staying man. Let me break this down for you. First of all, a winsome person is someone who is walking. It says in verse 33 that as this good Samaritan journeyed, he was out on a journey. He was proactive, but as he was out journeying, he was on mission. Someone who is winsome leverages their journey to be on mission with Jesus. They see that their daily activities uh, are not accidents, but opportunities. Our daily activities on the journey that we have, when we wake up in the morning, when we leave here tonight, those, those encounters that we have with people, those are, not, those are not accidents. Those are opportunities for us. Those are opportunities for us to leverage that to be on mission with Jesus. This good Samaritan man was leveraging his journey to be on mission. I'm sure he had places to be. I'm sure he was running late for a business meeting or his mama had lunch on the table. Whatever it was, he had somewhere to be. But he didn't allow that to distract him from the opportunity that God gave him right in his midst. And so winsome people are walking people. They are proactive people. And they are people who look at the journey as opportunity and not accident. They even look at the detours in the journey is opportunity and not accident. As we've talked tonight and seen tonight and heard tonight and heard over the last couple of weeks, many of you are facing insurmountable odds. Divorce, addiction, disease. And, and for many, we could fall into this trap that maybe that should somehow give us a time out from being on mission with Jesus. But the reality is, even in the detours that our journey takes us on, those detours give us opportunity. And so we're going to have opportunity in the midst of the detour to encounter people that we never encountered. We were just on the journey with no detour. And so when some people are walking people, they're proactive people. They realize when Jesus said in John 20, 21, as the Father has sent me, so I am sending you. That, that mission is not just for a select few of pro- professionals. It's not just for a few people who decide to live their life in Africa, though praise God for the people who decide to live their life in Africa, but mission is for everyone. When Jesus gave the great commission, he gave it to the church. He didn't just give it to pastors. He didn't just give it to worship leaders. He didn't just give it to the missionaries who go out to far-reaching places. No, no, no. He gave it to the entirety of the church, and the great commission of Jesus is a proactive mission. So when some people are mission-oriented people. They are walking people. Here's the other thing about winsome people. They are seeing people. It says in verse 33, it says that this good Samaritan man, he saw this man. Now, I know some of you are probably thinking, Aaron, that's not really profound. We know that. But, but did you see that the other two guys also saw him? It says that the Levite and the priest, they also saw this man. But when the good Samaritan man encountered this guy, he saw him in a whole different way. And, and, and I can only help but think that, that, that there is a difference between pity and compassion. There's a difference between pity and compassion. And I can only imagine that the first two guys, they had pity on this man. They saw him and they just said, oh, that poor guy. I really hope that somebody helps him. I hope that somebody comes along in just a few minutes and I hope that they help this guy out. But when the good Samaritan man came by, he saw him, but he saw him with compassion. And the word used in the scripture for compassion has to do with something that we feel deep down in our bowels, in our soul. It's something that we feel that we're moving 
moved to unction and we cannot help but to, to react when we are moved with that kind of compassion. And that's how the good Samaritan man saw this man. So he was a seeing man. He had compassion on him and his compassion ultimately moved him to action. We also see that this good Samaritan man, he was a meeting man. He was a meeting man, meaning he was going to meet this guy's needs. Now, this guy had just been beaten up. He'd just been bloodied. So not only was it going to be inconvenient for him to stop and and help him out, but it was going to get messy. And here's the amazing thing about dealing with people. Um, People can be messy. I mean, if you've ever had a mother-in-law, you know that people can be messy. Just kidding. That didn't land too good. (laughs) All kinds of people can be messy. Ministry is messy. I love my mother-in-law, by the way. Ministry can be very messy. And a lot of times we just kind of want to take a step back from the messiness and we just rather not get involved. But anytime we get involved with people, it's going to be a mess. And there are going to be intricacies and details and things that maybe we didn't sign up for, things that we didn't ask for when when we were just kind of cruising by. But now all of a sudden we're in it, and it is messy. And we've got to realize that when some people are not afraid of the mess, when some people are people who are willing to roll up their sleeves in the midst of the mess and realize that, yes, we are all human beings, and guess what? We are all broken people, and we are all messy people. And so when we're going to, when we're going to serve each other, when we're going to serve this city, we're going to get our hands dirty a little bit. Or sometimes we may get our hands dirty a lot because it can be ugly. But when some people do not care because they're, they are embracing the mess. And this good Samaritan man, he embraced the mess. And the last thing that we see from this good Samaritan man is that he was a staying man. He was a staying man. Did you, did you see what happened here with this good Samaritan man? It says, it says in the scripture, it says he took care of him. He went to this man and he took care of him. He bound him up, bound his wounds. He poured oil on his wounds. He poured wine on his wounds. He bound them up. Then he took this man and he took him and put him on his animal. And then he carted this man off uh, to an inn. And he said to the innkeeper, here is two denarii, which a denarii was a day's wages. So two days days wages he paid to this innkeeper, probably enough, most scholars believe, to keep the guy there for 24 days. He said, here's 24 days worth of care. Please take care of this man. Listen, if he, if he requires longer care, guess what? I'll pay for that too, because here's the deal. I'm going to leave for a little while, and I'm going to make sure his needs are taken care of while I'm gone, but guess what? I'm going to come back, and I'm going to make sure that this guy gets back on the right track. And here's what happens when some people are in it for the long hall. They don't give up on people. They don't think that their job is done just after the initial encounter. No, they are in it for the long haul. And this Samaritan man said, listen, I'm in it with you. I'm going for it. I'm going to make sure that you get back on the road to healing, and I'm not going to give up. And as I think about this idea of a winsome person being someone who is a staying person, someone who doesn't give up, someone who doesn't throw in the towel, I'm like, where does the ability to do that come from? Because, you know, we all get tired. We all get frustrated. We all want to give up. And sometimes it is maybe just better off in our minds just to kind of move on. But where does a winsome person 
get the idea that they can just kind of stay in for the long haul. Well, they get the idea from the gospel. They get the idea that when Jesus met us in the midst of our brokenness, Scripture tells us that we were dead in our trespasses. Translated otherwise, we were utterly hopeless in our trespasses. And even in the midst of our trying to rectify things with God and trying to uh, uh, gain approval with God, God still pursued us. And guess what? It says in Ephesians chapter 2 that God saved us through the person of Jesus, even when we were dead in our trespasses and sin. He pursued us in the midst of our ugliness. He pursued us in the midst of our messiness. He pursued us in the midst of our brokenness. He pursued us in the midst of our failure. He pursued us when we let him down. He pursued us when we said, we don't want to be around you anymore. He pursued us when, our, when we were ugly, when we were running far from him, when we didn't care for him. He still pursued us. Uh, the gospel is a gospel of staying. Jesus stayed. And he met us in the midst of our greatest need. Not because of anything that we did, but only because of his relentless grace that never gave up. That sought us in the midst of our need. As I mentioned earlier, um, briefly, for nine years we lived in New York City and I uh, helped start a couple of churches up there and I pastored one of those churches for a little season, and it's absolutely incredible the types of people that you meet in New York. And so I met a guy named Kevin while I was living in New York. And it's interesting, um, the journey that took us, Carmen and I, uh, to meet Kevin. Uh, We were actually cast in an infomercial. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, it gets better. Uh, it, It was an infomercial for Beachbody. Yeah, the same people who do P90X and Insanity and all that crazy stuff. And I'm sure when they looked at me, they said, if that guy can do it, he'll inspire millions of others to do it as well. So in 2008, we were cast in this infomercial. And there were really kind of a couple deals we had to sign up for. One is we had to eat their food for 90 days. 1,500 calories a day, we had to do it. All right? Second thing, we had to work out every day with their trainer. I said, all right. So for Carmen and I, the journey we were on was that, hey, we're going to get free food for 90 days, uh, and we're going to get to work out at a gym in Rockefeller Center that we could never afford to work out in. We're going to get to do that for free for 90 days. It's going to be awesome. But what Jesus had in mind was that um, there's going to be another reason why we got into that crew. Uh, There's a guy named Kevin, and Kevin was tall like me, and so tall people in group exercise classes, uh, they tend to hang out in the back because they're hoping they can just kind of hide out and and mask their awkwardness. Uh, And because you don't want to see me move uh, in that kind of class. So Kevin and I were hanging out literally on the back row uh, and just trying to get our awkward selves through the movements in this particular class that we were in. And so as we got to know each other and meet each other and talk to each other, uh, we decided it'd be cool to hang out a little bit after class one day. And so Kevin and I started hanging out, got to hear his story and Kevin's about my age, and so it was amazing to hear his story because he just had a completely different path than I'd had. Kevin had been married twice, had a few kids. He had walked out on the marriages and walked out on his kids. He'd worked 
a lot of different jobs and never really able to kind of string it together. Though if you saw Kevin, you'd think, man, this guy's really put together. He's a sharp guy, articulate guy. You just think he's got it all together. But the inside of Kevin was telling a completely different story. So Kevin and I would meet with each other from time to time. And after a few meetings, I just began to kind of put it out there and share the gospel with him. And every time I'd share the gospel with Kevin, he would just absolutely reject it. And I remember one particular time we were in our office, my office at 27th and Broadway, and we were up there and Kevin was kind of laying out all the tragedies of his life. And, and, and I just didn't know what to do anymore. And, and I just started pleading with him. And I remember the veins in my neck just, just kind of popping out as I pleaded with Kevin to give his life to Jesus. And Kevin just put his hand up and said, I, I don't need Jesus. I was frustrated, kind of ready to throw in the towel. Kevin and I kind of went our separate ways and we'd text every now and then, but there were several weeks where I really just didn't communicate or hear from Kevin. And one day I I get a, a phone call from Kevin's number, but it was Kevin's mom on the other end. She says, Aaron, uh, Kevin has gotten into some trouble and, um, He's actually in jail right now. And there's really only one person in the world that he wanted me to tell that he was there because he figured there was really only one person that would care. And she asked if I would go visit him or talk to him. So I went down to the, to the holding place there in Manhattan and couldn't get in. There's all kinds of circumstances why I couldn't get in. And so I kind of backtracked, and they ended up taking Kevin out to Rikers Island, which has probably got to be the scariest place in North America. That's the prison island that you fly over when you're flying into LaGuardia. So they took Kevin out there, and we arranged a way to, to have a phone call. So I talked to Kevin, just encouraged him, again, asking him to place his faith in Jesus, and he just wouldn't do it. And I thought to myself, I said, how bad does it have to get? for you to place your faith in Jesus. Nonetheless, he didn't accept Jesus. Several months later, Kevin was released from Rikers and called me up and said, hey man, love to get together. And I just kind of said, hey, you know, um, I don't have time to get together, um, but I'd, I'd love to set up a meeting with a friend of mine. So there's another pastor on our team and I set he and Kevin up to have a meeting and, and quite frankly, in my mind, I was just done with Kevin. So I set up this meeting, Kevin and my friend, they get together and the Holy Spirit moved in that meeting between those two in a way that it had not moved in our previous meetings. And in that meeting that day, Kevin gave his life to Jesus. And he, he moved from death to life. He moved from placing his sole hope in himself and what he could do to get himself out of his jams, and he moved his hope into Jesus. Just a few days ago, actually October the 3rd is my birthday, and Kevin and I tend to text back and forth, though we haven't seen each other probably in four years, and so on my birthday, he texted me. He said, man, i just checking in. He said, life is great. Things are going great. 
Uh, and then just after the text message, he sent me a picture of his family, one of his children, and they just looked healthier and happier than they'd ever looked in, in the time that I've known them. Now, here's the thing. I'm sure if Kevin were here tonight and I could interview him, he'd probably tell you that things aren't perfect and that he's still got a long way to go and that there's a lot of relationships that need to be repaired and healed and forgiven in his life. But the bottom line is, Jesus, even in the midst of Kevin's absolute refusal, Jesus was pursuing Kevin. And Jesus was working on him. Even when he was laying in that jail cell on Rikers Island, Jesus was working on him. And when Jesus orchestrated for Kevin and my friend to get together, it was just the right time for Kevin just to throw up his hand and say, I surrender.